but it works and it saves people money too, ultimately at the end of the day. So it was like a magical multi-factor, like A, saving money, B, pay the way they want to, and three, it's undisplaceable because what we've created was a change in a business model and knowing that Clavio is about to IPO, they're not changing. Marketing is about values. Nike didn't call me and sell me this in a catalog. I bought this swoosh because it's ingrained in my soul. When you have a product that really resonates with with customers, the word of mouth uh, grows like wildfire. Welcome to the Marketing Max Show. Now, let's dive in. Super cool. Well, thank you to Mr. Jimmy Kim at Yo Jimmy Kim on Twitter for taking some time to chat with me today. How hey, is your Monday up, going? It's good, man. Monday is always exciting as we we're just talking about. I love Mondays. You have an exhaustive weekend because you're watching your kids and you get back to Monday and you get to refresh and get back to the grind. Man, I literally recorded another episode this morning with Chase Diamond, who we were just talking about pre-hitting record. And he was also talking about the Monday tiredness of kids. You know, I just got married. I don't have kids yet. I have a dog and we treat him like as much of a kid as possible. But I know it's it's totally different. But yeah, he was saying the same thing. And and I come to Monday super rested, ready to go, ready to kill it. And he was like, yeah, man, Mondays just, uh, they beat you up when you have two kids. I don't know, you have two, three kids, but yeah, it's, it sounds like a handful. 100%. <laughs> cool. Sure. Well, I have never met you, have never spoken to you besides the three DMs we shared on Twitter. When I tweeted out who I should have on the podcast, people tagged you and I was immediately like, oh my God, I need to get this guy on the podcast. Frankly, I didn't even know your name. I just said, I want to meet the CEO of Sendlane because I've been seeing you guys absolutely everywhere on Twitter. I saw you just raised a pretty penny from some pretty legit VCs or equity growth. I think you also took some venture debt as well, if I remember correctly. Yep. Um, so we can get into all that. But yeah, you're building what I consider to be one of the fastest growing SaaS businesses, certainly in the e-commerce space, if not in all of the SaaS space. So would love to just pick your brain and learn more about what you guys are up to and some of the battle scars that you've taken on as you've grown this business. I think it's one of those things where I've seen it everywhere in the last two months and everyone seems to be switching pretty much the entire industry of VCOM is switching from Klaviyo, it sounds like over to you guys, or at least that's what my Twitter is making it out to be. But then when I do my due diligence five minutes before this call, you guys have been around since 2013. So it's one of those, quote unquote, overnight success stories. So I'll shut up now. would love to hear you know the quick spiel and in your own words of who you are and what you do, maybe from you know day one and, and give us the highlights of who is at Yo Jimmy Kim on Twitter. Sure, man. I'm happy to do it. So I will zap back. I'm going to start showing my age. So uh, I've been around for a while. Uh, I'll start there, right? So a zap all the way back to 2001. That's where my first career started. So my story is one of those fun, interesting ones where I was going to school at Penn State and I wasn't failing or doing bad, but I really just didn't know what I was doing. The recession, the dot-com bubble had just burst and I wanted to get in computer science, but I didn't realize that once I found out about a little bit about the money, it wasn't as exciting back then for me. And uh, mm -hmm. I was trying to figure myself out. So every summer I used to come back, I was washing cars at the age of 16. And when I went to college, every summer I'd come back and I'd go back to wash cars for my summer job. One summer I came back and uh, I walked back and they're like, we don't have any summer jobs available right now. There's nothing. We're fully, fully staffed. And I was like, well, crap, that's my only plan. I had no plan B. I was just a plan A guy at that point because <laughs> I thought it would always be there, right? So I showed up and he was like, but 
you know, you've been around these cars for long. Why don't you just go sell them? And I was like, okay. Right. So I walked out to the front and, uh, you know, put on my tie and my suit and tie and no idea what I was doing. And I just talked to everybody. And that was, that's like lesson number one that I learned. I had no judgment. I just talked to anybody and anybody, 16 year old kid, 90 year old grandpa, doesn't matter. I talked to him. Well, that led me to be the salesman of the month, my first month selling. I just sold a tremendous amount and I made my first commission check. And I remember staring at it going, that's $14,000. This is 2001. Huge. right? So I'm like, (laughs) Wow. And I show my parents, they're like, yeah, 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 you got lucky, do it again. So the next month I did it and I made more money the next month. And then my parents were like, okay, like you made more money in two months and you would have done it in one year salary. What are you going to do? I said, well, I'd like to take some time off to figure out what's going on here. And, you know, I'm come from Asian parents. They hated this idea, but ultimately they knew that I was hitting something right and it was working. So I did that. I started selling cars. I never ended up going back to school. I was always hungry, so I quickly moved in. By the time I was 21, I became a finance manager, then a finance director, a general sales manager. And then by the time I was 25, I was running three Saturn stores as general manager, including one that was a top 10 in the nation. I remember still standing up at the General Motors annual conference as a young kid, 25 years old, getting presented (laughs) a a thing and everyone just staring at me like, whose son is that, right? And I'm like, no, it's me. Like I was running the store, right? So it was pretty exciting times. I still remember that day because it was like probably the most intimidating day of my life as it was all like old guys in white hair and then me. And it was just very confusing, right? So, you know, it was a fun time. Well, in 2008, the recession happened, right? General Motors shut down Saturn, shut down all this stuff. And at that time, I had been doing this for eight, nine years at that point, And I was just tired, man. I was working 70, 80 hours a week. I worked five, six days a week, usually straight. And then I would take Sundays off. So I knew that I wasn't, I didn't want to keep doing this. As I saw the recession pop and I watched my money deflate and everything go to crap. I was like, this isn't the future. Like being in car sales is not Mm going to make me live for another 40, 50 years. I'm probably going to die because I smoke cigarettes and drink so much alcohol, right? Because I was always stressed out. So I flipped over and I was like, Around that time, I knew this guy, his name is Onik, and he runs this company, I'll Learn, we we're just talking about before this podcast. And he was a neighbor of mine, not too far from me. And we met at a recent, like, little, like, buddy, friends hangout thing that we did. And then we met him and, you know, we started becoming friends. And one day, never even asked him uh, this whole time, one day I asked him what he did. And he started explaining to me on the internet, like, basically, he was teaching people to be affiliate marketers. And what that means is that you're the middleman and you sit between the two parts and you you drive traffic and you when they purchase, you get paid. And I was like, Wow. And then he was like, well, how do you do that? And he was like, there's two ways. There's PPC and email marketing. And we started talking. And one thing led to another. And I was like, okay, dude, like I want to learn what you're doing. And I'm looking at your organization. You've got 80 people in your company. I can help you in the operational side. I can teach you this stuff. But you've got to teach me the marketing side and teach me all this stuff. And we'll make a fair swap. I'll help you out. I want to do this for a couple of years, but then I'm going to go off and move on and do my own thing. So that's exactly what I did. I started there. I came in right away to kind of run an entire organization. You know, we did some of the most toughest decisions. We laid off like a lot of people. We had to cut some things. We had to get the company in a good place. And then we propelled wow. it and shot it back off into the right direction. And by then, three years later, I had realized like, okay, I'm ready. I need to go off and do it. And in the background, I'd started to dabble on my own, started learning affiliate marketing and started making some money online. And uh, that led me to getting into the idea that, hey, this is fun and I'm making money, but can I go teach it? And so I became a content creator first, right? So I was teaching people Mm -hmm. how to make money online by building affiliate marketing businesses. And during that time, I, uh, I was making good money and a friend of mine came to me and says, hey, like I've got this 50 grand PO from Pacific Sunwear. I need some money. Can you front it to me? And without even thinking about it, I gave him a check and I walked away. It was several months later that I was sitting in a room with him and I was like, hey man, like, 
tell me about your business. What do I give you money for? Like, what are you doing? How's business going? And one thing led to another. And he was like, well, we have this boutique clothing store. It's men's streetwear and women's streetwear and kids' streetwear. And, you know, we buy cool clothes. And we have this little cut and sew department. We just started up trying to create a direct-to-consumer. Well, before then, it was just called like your own brand, I guess. <laughs> and I, you know, started getting some traction with it. So I was like, wow, how's your online? And he looked at me and he was like, not actually doing anything online. This is 2013. So I was like, that's it. So I was like, all right, let me come in. I'll run your marketing, do your online stuff. You do your thing. I'll keep you operating and moving forward in cash. You just do the product, creative and warehousing and all that stuff, photography, all that. And that's what we did. So yeah. for the next four years, we started scaling this thing. We went from this retail storefront, 1200 square foot storefront to this 10,000 square foot warehouse where we had, you know, all wholesale inventory, photo booths, 3PL. We did everything inside of there and we scaled that wow. thing more to $10 million plus. And, uh, it was a heck of a ride. And, you know, at that same time, I was running this software, uh, this a content creator company that became a software company over time because I started to hear the problems that my students were having. And I started solving them by hiring people to produce small, simple things like, hey, I really need an ebook creator. Well, let's go create something to make it. We don't need all these extra things. All we need is this template with these things and that can create that book. So I started creating these really cheap, I would say, systemized products that were 50, 100 bucks, one-time payment that you'd pay me and you'd download it or you'd access it on the web and then you just kind of do your thing. And so I was doing hmm. that and all of these things kind of came into this weird, interesting point where I had people wanted to buy and purchase those assets of that company. And in my e-commerce retail store, our partnership was starting to fall apart because I was a capitalist. I like to run Facebook ads and make money. He liked to be cool and didn't want the brand to get uncool. And we had a lot of conflict. And honestly, I just wasn't into that conflict and I wanted to go do something big. So yeah. that's when it all kind of came into this thing. Now, why I tell this story? Well, back in 2013, again, when I was doing the e-commerce thing, when I was doing the content creator thing, we had this big general problem between myself and the other two co-founders. We all added on our businesses. We all relied on email. We couldn't find tools that could do the things that we wanted it to do. We had MailChimp. We had Bronto. We wanted to do Bronto, but we didn't want to pay for Bronto. We wanted to pay for MailChimp because we didn't have any money. <laughs> so... uh we thought we were so smart that we could just go off and hire some smart people, throw some UI in, and oh, we could do this easily. And though it wasn't just as easy as we expected to, we figured it out. And over the next like four years, we basically made a crap ton of money using this tool that wasn't even called really Sendlane at that time. It was just a tool that we're working through. And we're like using it for our email blasting wow. and all that stuff. And we we're getting the things that we needed in our business to do the things to make ourselves more money. And that's where our story starts in 2013. But really, the settling story, in my opinion, starts in September of 2017. That's when I went all in. I decided that's it. I'm putting my hat on. I'm now taking the role as a CEO, and we're going to go do something with this thing. And so that's exactly what we started. At. And the initial vision was never like, I didn't start the vision and say, I'm going to go build email. The vision was actually, how do I build the unified future? You see, when I was in the last four years in Shopify, the biggest thing, and it's always funny because I'm a founder and I always think like this, but I would have stupid $4.99 applications that were stuck on my Shopify app store that I didn't know how to cancel and I couldn't get rid of, but I didn't know how to, I didn't know what to do and I would just charge me. And I had a ton of those because back in the early days of Shopify, you'd have to buy the back in stock, the Swatch app, the out of office. It, there was so much crap you had to buy. And I wanted to go <laughs> fix that problem of unifying the stack, getting rid of all the crazy stuff that was there. And I looked at this platform, Sendlane, that we had done with email, and I said, look, this thing could be our basis of the future of how we consolidate the stack and bring in the unified MarTech experience for the future for a merchant just like me, a mid-market merchant doing $1 to $100 million. Like, that's who I'm building for, right? 
So I started building that, raised the money in 2018. So that was my first seed raise, right? I'd never raised money before. <laughs> I called a lot of people. I walked around a lot in <laughs> the Bay, New York, and Boston. And I did all the things that you're supposed to do. All those stories you hear about people walking up Sand Hill Road, like that was me. I didn't know any better. I didn't have any connections. I'd never raised money before. I don't even have a college education. All I know is I can pitch the living crap out of this thing and I'm going to get someone excited about it. And that's ultimately what I did. I ended up with the multiple term sheets. It was an exciting time and we raised some money. And then we put our heads down and we said, now we got to go build this product that we're talking about. So from 2018 into 2021, for almost three years, we built. We built like crazy. We worked on it. We were trying to sell it, of course, the whole time because that's what you're supposed to do. But honestly, it was a struggle to sell because we just weren't ready. 2021 rolled around. We started getting more ready. We uh, what's that called? got some early traction, raised some more money, and then started pushing forward. And I would say that over the last 12 months, really over the last 12 months, we finally found our product market fit. We started to find our voice. We started finding a position and we've been making a lot of traction. And to your point, the last couple of months, especially have been a roller coaster and a rocket ship for us. And it's been the most humbling and grateful experience of my life. And it's been a <laughs> heck of a journey. So yeah, like at the high level, I look back and, you know, I've done a lot of things in my life, but ultimately today, what we like to say about ourselves is Sendlane's a unified email, SMS, and reviews for e-commerce. We're hyper-verticalized. We focus exactly on a niche art audience. We're not for restaurants. We're not for, you know, the content creator. We're not for anything. We're for e-commerce. You use one of these tools, Shopify, BigCommerce, a custom, a WooCommerce. That's who we attach to and that's who we empower the most. So that's Sendlane ultimately, and that's our story. So I hope that uh, gave you the little like five, 10 minute like <laughs> overview there. Dude, you need your own podcast. You're an amazing storyteller. You got the energy. <laughs> I already want to invest with you because I'm an angel investor, even though I give the smallest checks and you definitely don't want or need me on your cap table. But I'm like, man, I got to like have you like over to my house for a drink. Like we got to like hang out. You got, <laughs> you got the energy, man. You're the CEO, right? That's what the VCs want. That's what customers want, right? You love coming on podcasts. You said you were, this is one of like, what, 50 different podcasts you've done or even God, more? I, I don't even know how many I've done this week. But not this energy. week. You're, you're my first this week. I know <laughs> I, did, I, I did like 12 last week. So I'm okay, all over so it. Because, you know, now. I have a weird philosophy. <laughs> I don't say no to any podcast, by the way. I don't care if you're a, a one-person show in the basement. I don't care. I'm going to do your podcast. I'm going to do my best for you because I know that one day you will take off and one day I will get that credit back for time I've spent there. So I'm a big believer in that. Amazing. I love that. I love the leverage that you get from it, the paying it back that you get from it. And one of the things that stuck out to me among the 5,000 things from your story here, as you called it, seven to 10 minute story there, was you used, or I guess to stick with the term leveraged, you leveraged your hard skills that you learned finance and sales from your car sales days into your first foray into affiliate marketing with Onyx. Can you give us an overview of what Learn, you uh, spelled L-U-R-N, right? Learn Inc. Yeah. is, I mean, I, I've seen Onyx ad everywhere. I think I subscribed to his newsletter for a minute and was like, okay, this is decent, but not worthy of my inbox just because I'm crazy and <laughs> do inbox zero. So like the amount of things that hit my inbox is like literally 10 things a day. But like, how does it make money? How many people are in it? I know nothing about it other than seeing Onyx face on Instagram and being on the newsletter. Sure. What is the business? 
Yeah, it's evolved so much since I've been there. But when I was there, I'll start off there. We were, they were strictly an education company. They taught people affiliate marketing through either PPC advertising or through email marketing. So that's where it started. Eventually, they became more of a publishing tool where they were bringing in experts in the, what they call, not really digital market. Well, it is digital market, but, you know, internet marketing, I'm sure you've heard. And, you know, he worked with a lot of the old heads with Frank Kearns and the Eben Pagans and all those guys from way back in the day, like what they call the OG internet marketers, basically. And uh, he's been teaching and publishing people for years. So today he publishes people. Ultimately, he has like expert workshops and different things where he congregates a group of people and teaches them different things. They've evolved past affiliate marketing or really teaching about business building and fundamentals, but it's still very focused on that really small entrepreneur often doing, you know, just getting started or a couple hundred thousand dollars and really are finding their early product market fit. So that's what they do. It's wow. a home for entrepreneurs, essentially. It's a coaching system. It's, you know, however you want to look at it. It's a mental state, whatever it is. So that's what they do today. And uh, yeah, that's what their business does. And what's the main offer? Like pay 5K and get access to what? Or is it just a bunch of $100 low ticket courses? And if you don't all know, or if you can't say, okay, it's all the above. That's why you're laughing. All okay. above. He's got the low end <laughs> stuff. He's got the freebie tripwires. Then he's got the five, $10,000 mastermind classroom stuff he does. So he's got a full funnel yeah. of things, plus a sales team and, you know, people who are helping like guide people into the right a product for them and stuff like that. So that's as much as I know these days. I, you know, I still, I'm still his got best it. friend. We talk, but we rarely talk about business. You know how this goes when you eventually evolve yeah. out of there, you talk about everything else, like complaining and about your and, kids and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you don't know the answer, fine. Or if you can't say the answer, cause you're too close to the guy, that's fine. But I just love numbers. Like any idea top line, what Learn Inc. does? Like we talking a couple mil a year, 10 mil a year? Like does he have a massive operation? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty large operation. I think, I don't know their more recent numbers, but if I look back maybe a year or two, they're doing north of 25, $30 million a year. So it's okay. not small operation. He had like 60, 70 employees in the US plus his overseas. So I don't know what they're doing today with their revenue because I don't know, but they're definitely at that large number. And you met him in San Diego, right? You said you were literally neighbors. I actually met him in Washington, D.C. That's actually where I'm from originally, from the Washington, D.C. metro area. So he lived about five minutes from me. I Actually, not in D.C. It was Maryland, right? So we lived five minutes from each other. I moved out west uh, a little bit over 10 years ago to San Diego. So I'm actually not from the West Coast. I'm originally an East Coaster for 30 years of my life. And he's still based in D.C.? He's still based in the similar area that he is, yeah. Got it. I didn't know that. I thought he was also based in San Diego. And then I was going to ask you, it seems like there's a lot of really amazing, great internet entrepreneurs and marketers that come out of San Diego. What's the other guy's name? Billy Jean or Uh, he's also in San Diego, Billy Jean Marketing. He's down there. There's a lot of them. I mean, the Frank Kearns and all the guys and Mike Phil, they all live out here. So yeah, it's not, I think the best way to say is like a lot of the people who end up in San Diego eventually get into like the lifestyle of San Diego, which is a little bit more laid back, a little sunny. You know what I mean? Like they get to a good point in their business and then they come to San Diego because it's a nice experience. Got it. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, you said that when you were first starting to raise capital for Sendlane, you didn't know a whole lot of people. Did you try? I know you mentioned San Francisco, New York. Did you try any SD VCs? Do you have any like any community down there? Not really. It does not really exist for what you're trying to do. Yeah. No, I tried everybody, man. 
there was no rock to uncover. I basically did the old school, like BD methodology. I went off to like Crunchbase and, you know, all these places like AngelList. And I basically found anyone and everyone. And we just emailed everyone one by one. And we emailed them. And yeah, we met people in San Diego. San Diego is much more like back, especially when I was raising, it was much more biotrust heavy, uh, biotrust, biotech heavy. And mm-hmm. so there was a lot more biotech and life science money down here. Definitely ra- tried to raise in LA, tried to raise in the Bay, Seattle. I mean, I went everywhere to try to figure it out. But the road shows that we tried to do ended up normally in the big cities just because you can clump together six, seven, eight meetings in a day and you just fly around town and just try to meet people and just pitch and pitch and pitch until you can find someone that sticks. Yeah. And when you say we a lot, is that just because you're an awesome CEO or did you have co-founders that you... You know, co-founded this with that uh, you were doing the yeah, shows with, and really, yeah, I had two co-founders. I had two co-founders. One was never active, which just kind of started with us, and then the second one was active, and then he exited in 2019. So, okay, when I was raising my seed, it was a we. It was me, myself, and I will always say we, anyways, when we're thinking about things, because it's everybody is involved is the company ultimately. If you like what you're hearing, please take a quick second to hit that share button and text it to a friend, post it in a Slack channel, or share it on any of your favorite social platforms. It takes us hours to make this show, but only a few seconds for you to share it with your community. Thanks. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, because I know you said you, you kind of built the tech with some other guys, you know, early 2013, you had the tech working on your own projects. Fast forward to 2023, one of the guys left early, one of the guys left in 2019. Now you're the CEO, you've you've taken on some other investors on the cap table. Walk us through the stats, how many employees, if you can share revenue numbers, like give us a sense of how big the operation is today. Sure, sure, no, absolutely. So yeah, we, the two co-founders are no longer in the business, we bought them out, the cap's clean there. Obviously partner with some great firms. So our primary backing is from this company called Five Elms Capital. It's a billion dollar fund out of, it's actually out of the Midwest to your point, like where they are, they're <laughs> out of Kansas City, Missouri. So very different, mm. one never noticed, but there's a lot of money out there because they run great businesses and they're great partners to the business. Wow. The team today, we're a little bit over 60 people. Uh, we're remotely all over uh, the United States, a little bit overseas, a little bit down in South America. So we've got a pretty cool blend of team. We're actually a, a uniquely pretty balanced team of sweet CS to engineering to sales. So it's like a 33, 33, 33 mix here because all of them cool. are very important and mission critical. The business will do north of $10 million this year. So annual reoccurring revenue. So, and uh, we're growing at a tremendous pace right now, north of 200% wow. year over year. So we're moving really fast. Whoa, whoa. May I ask if you're profitable, just out of curiosity? We are not profitable yet. My plan is to hit profitability in the early parts of 2024. So we're not far. Cool. Very, very cool. What do you think are the biggest hurdles it's going to take to get you there? I think right now, uh, you know, we have the, (laughs) and I mean this in the right way, it's like we have a lot of clients and a lot of people that want to be a part of Sendlane or join Sendlane. And we're being very smart about it. And it's making sure that the customers we're onboarding, we're doing a great job on because we understand that how much of the word of mouth it carries on forward. So my biggest hurdle is just making sure that our customers are happy, they're utilizing the tool. And I know that the growth will continue on from that because I think everything else is already checkmarked and it's just really proving ourselves out now at this point. And you know, some of the large brands that we have come on board that have been successful and been very happy, the more we can shout about them later on in life, the more it's going to allow us to continue to grow and expand. So that's probably my biggest challenge. I think 
finding people we're very good at on, on that side of things. And, you know, I think we've got a really great leadership team that can mature and grow with us for at least another year or two before we start having to hire more people into those places. So I would say that, you know, proving ourselves out and really hitting the market with the social proof that we need to continue to hit, which we've done now today, but I want to continue to do that because to me, I understand this market that we talk into and that market is very much in this D2C space is really much in LinkedIn and on Twitter. They're very social. There's a lot of lurkers. There's a lot of people who <laughs> listen, but no, don't never interact. And they show up in my inbox often because, you know, they want to eventually reach out. And that's basically the biggest thing that's been happening for us. Got it. Now, when you say that one of your biggest hurdles is onboarding the right kind of customer, I've seen this trend in the last few weeks of people talking about not just taking any customer or client that you possibly can, really making sure that your first few customers, your first few hundred, your first few thousand even, are really your ideal customer because the lifetime value is going to be way better from a business standpoint. But also just from your point, from a social proof and a word of mouth, you don't want to onboard 100 customers, 50 of them maybe could use it. Like you said, like, okay, yes, I could certainly use SendLane to send emails for a restaurant, but it's not really built for that. And then they're going to go tell everyone else that SendLane sucks, which it doesn't. Oh, well, I haven't used it, so I can't say. But you know, they're going to go out and say it sucks when in reality, it just sure. wasn't built for that. How do you guys make sure that you're onboarding up the right customers? And do you have like things in place with your salespeople that say, okay, this is just a red flag. We're not going to onboard you, even if you're happy to pay our highest level tier. Like, Who is that target customer and what kind of processes do you have in place to make sure that that happens? Because I don't think enough early stage entrepreneurs are doing that. And it's one of those things where if you're truly playing the long game like you are, you've been doing this since 2013, even though you really started taking it serious in 2017, it really can make or break your business for years to come. Yeah. So I go back to 2017 when I first started like building Sendlane and I did exactly what you said. I would say yes to anybody who would say yes to me and I would onboard mm. them and we'd try our best, right? Churn was high. That was a big problem, right? We're spending all this time, money and churn. And uh, acquisition was interesting because we, again, would say yes to anybody. And that ultimately led us to now, which has been interesting because we have this legacy business that ultimately formed businesses that we no longer are servicing. So to your point, Max, what's our ICP, right? I, I look at it very simply. They're making a million to $100 million. They're on Shopify, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, or a custom cart. They're selling a physical product. That's our focus. My salespeople know if we get a call and none of those boxes or one of those boxes are checkmarked, we tell them straight up right there at that point, I'm sorry, we're probably not the best tool. Here's a list of three other tools that we could recommend that you can go look at. That's probably a better tool for you. And to your point, the biggest reason why I learned this is I've touched a fire way too many times, right? I touched a <laughs> fire, took the money, who was willing to give me the, you know, a year ago, someone would offer me four or five grand a month. I would be like, oh my God, like, let's do it. Let's get going. Let's get moving. But then we'd burn all our time trying to make that customer happy, trying to fix peg into a round hole, like trying to figure out what to do there, right? Now, obviously, as we figured it out and we're onboarding customers and everything, 20, 25, 30, 40 grand a month, it's obviously, as long as you've got them aligned, it's so easy, the repeatable playbook, it allows your team to be well-structured and optimal. So they know exactly what they're working on each and every time. And there's no new situations outside the norm that continue to appear. And that's, to me, the most important thing. It allows you to scale. I think knowing who your customer needs to be and allowing you to repeat that playbook is the most important thing to grow. And if you really want to grow at a high scale, especially, God, you got to have that thing down real tight because every new challenge is one new fire. And as you know, in a startup, like everything's on fire and it's whatever you can prioritize to put out <laughs> first. So, you know, the less I can put in front of my team, the better it's going to be for our own success. Wow. You dropped so many little nuggets in there. So many little like one sentence, like just 
really smart things that I think every single entrepreneur should take to to heart and to put in their playbook. I have to ask though, like you've raised a good amount of money and I really identify with the, you know, in the early days, man, someone's willing to pay me four grand. I'll build any feature they need. You know, I'll take calls on the weekends, right? Like whatever it takes early days in my agency, early days in my current newsletter business. Like, man, someone wants to spend double our highest package on, you know, our, our rate card. What can I do for you? Right. Would you say it's easier when you have funds in the bank, the amount of funds that you've raised, it's easier to really focus on your ICP and turn business away? Like how much has that helped you be <laughs> able to just harder. turn it down? It's harder. It's actually okay. harder because here's why. You've got pressure. You got a pressure to hit your numbers. You got a pressure and a commitment. You're you're a big boy now and you've got a board that's gonna look at you and they don't give a crap about what I mean, they do, but they don't give <laughs> they want to see the number, right? So the pressure yeah. is even harder. You know, to me, when we first like made the shift into this market, we would still let some of these deals slide in because of the revenue and stuff like that. It was the moment I looked at my team and I was like, where are we stuck? How can we help? I have this weekly thing I'm asked to talk to my senior leader. Where are we stuck? And everything that kept coming to me was the wrong business. And I was like, we're wasting our time right now because I know that this business has a longevity of six to 12 months before they're out of here, whenever their next contract is, yet we're spending all our time trying to make these people happy. And I knew that it was really important to set that hard line. Secondly, as weird as it sound, the more you establish this hard line, the better your customers that come in become too as well. The market starts talking about it. They're not for us. They're not for this. Don't try Sendlane. They're not for our market. They're for this market, right? We wanted to come out and become identified that way. And the only way you do it is actually becoming a gatekeeper and saying no to people, refunding people. Like if you come up and sign up for a product and we see you're not a fit and our billing team sees it, we'll literally cancel and refund your money and send you a nice email and say, sorry, dude, like we're just not for your business. You're not going to be successful here. And plus you're probably paying us way too much because our market demands more money due to the data integrations and different things that come into place. So I think that's a really big awareness. And to your point, man, a lot of people can't get through that. It's the hardest thing you have to do. And it killed my team. I had people who hated it that I did this, <laughs> but like it was the most important thing. And today they look at me and say, no, you know what, Jimmy, that was right. That was the right thing you needed to do. And I was like, I don't know if it's right or Ryan. It's my gut. It told me that this is the only way to do it. Why would we sell to everybody else when we're trying to do this? And last but not least, it's the enterprise value, right? At the end of the day, if you ever want to sell your company and you want to get acquired one day, your customer base actually matters way more than you ever would think. The way the revenue comes in, the way the revenue is paid, the companies on the other end, they actually matter to what's your value of your companies. You've got a bunch of big, you know, very focused direct-to-consumer brands. They're going to be really valuing that versus just a plethora of brands and different things that are paying you a lot of money. That's worth a lot less money unless you just find a really bad buyer, which we know nowadays with educated buyers, they're very much smarter than ever. So, you know, these are things that we think about. And, you know, it's not just about the short term. It's about the long term decision there. And it's extremely tough, but it's also one that you just got to break through in order to make a successful business occur. Man, again, so many amazing little nuggets in there. And I think the summary that I got from all of that is actually just you're a contrarian because everyone thinks, okay, we need to take on every customer that we possibly can. Oh, you know, we have to find revenue where we can because finding revenue is really hard. I think it's fair to say we're on this podcast here together solely because of the word of mouth and the momentum that you've had, at least on Twitter, where I spend most of my time. It seems like you spend a lot of your time. And one of the things that leads to that kind of momentum and that kind of word of mouth is the true, I don't know how to say this, but essentially, you know, being true to your target customer, really trying to serve 
one particular yep. audience. And by saying, hey, you know, you're actually not a great fit for us. We're going to refund your money back, right? It's almost like you're leaving a good taste in someone's mouth, even though you're breaking up with them because you're saying, hey, yep. it's not you, it's me, right? It's like, we're just, we're looking for different things. And so yep. even though they might not be the best fit and they paid you and they thought at some case, this is going to be the final best email SMS tool ever of all time. This is it. Now, at least when people are commenting on Twitter, they could say, oh, you're in e-com and you're a physical business. You should check out yep. Sendlane. They didn't work for us, but that's because they're not built for us. And so you're not building Correct. enemies as you go through. And that's such a contrary thing that goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like you really are playing the long game. It's amazing to hear yeah. all of these different little nuances, how you run the business that really just make it so clear you're in it for the long haul, not just to make as much money as you possibly can in the short term. Yeah, I'm a fortunate founder, I would say. Being that this is my third business, I was fortunate to make money in my first two businesses <laughs> and exit well. And to me, like, this isn't about the money for me this time. Like making the money will be the outcome that occurs, but the vision is what I'm trying to serve and what I want to do. And ultimately, dude, I'm an entrepreneur. I want to win. And in order <laughs> to win, it's a long game. I, I know that long time ago, there's no such thing as shortcuts with this game. And to your point, like I've been working on it forever. And, you know, this last year has been cool and it's not over. I still got way more hurdles to hit over. And I think that these challenges will continue to come over, but at least for the the immediate currently runway right now, it looks really, really good for us right now. So it's both scary. I always tell people like, you may see me on the outside. And we always talk about this within my leadership team. You may see on the outside, we're doing great, but all it really does as a founder is it actually fuels me of paranoia because the last thing I want to do is lose this feeling that we have and put the people down that are looking up at us and all the people that are supporting our movement the last thing I want to do is let anyone down. So like, it's an, it's actually a weird epic paranoia thing that starts to create inside of you. And that just makes you better. It makes you worried about the future even more. And you are hypersensitive about every decision now because you need to look at 12, 18, 24 months into the future. And you need to know, hey, how is that decision going to affect that? And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot to it, man. I think the last uh, couple of years have really matured me as an entrepreneur as well as I crossed over my 40s and stuff. I always laugh. I always read those things about, the best entrepreneurs are in forties. And when I was in my thirties, I was like, yeah, right. My thirties, I'm way better. But I get it. In your forties, you hit the wisdom level that you've never had before. And I think you think about things differently because you could, you also think about mortality a little bit differently too, because you realize you're getting closer to that date and we all have an expiration date. So like you realize like all of this all compounds into this wisdom bubble that starts to occur within you. And I always laugh, people ask about age and I'm like, I think the 40s have been suddenly some of the coolest things I've done already in the first two years of my 40s, like definitely smarter and better as a person. Yeah, I think there was this crazy stat I read a while ago that said the average age of a founder who started a company and then eventually had that company in either the Fortune 500 or the, the Dow or the S&P 500 was 39 years old. The average age of the person when they founded the company, not when they got into the Fortune 500 yeah. or the S&P 500, whatever the stat was, forgive me for not knowing exactly what it was, but the average age of starting the company was 39 years old. That's crazy. I just turned 30. And I've been studying the last few weeks Warren Buffett like crazy. And, you know, another great example, right? When he was 30 years old, he was worth, I think, you know, a million or two million bucks. He didn't become a billionaire until he was 60. Granted, yes, when you're worth 100, 200 mil, you know, that's life-changing money. But like, he didn't become a billionaire until he was 60 years old. We think of him as this like, you know, career, amazing, young, hot shot, super rich guy. But 
No, he's the the Jimmy Kim. He's uh, you know, the billionaire at sixty track record. Like you're on your way to and Bezos too, right? Yeah. Like Bezos no different. None of them are if you think about them all. Like you gotta put a lot of effort and dude, every business, I don't care if it's a SaaS or it's econ, it's all a long game at the end of the day. If business was that easy and it was overnight, like you see about some of those crazy success stories you hear about 18 months to hundred million dollars, like that is so few and far in between in the world. The rest of us we're just chuggling along and trying to figure it out and, you know, I'm trying to make ends meet and find that right place to push on and make horrible decisions. Like these are all the things that we have to go through. And I think the biggest thing that I always laugh is like most entrepreneurs are just really great problem solvers at the end of the day. That's the way I look at them. They're great at doing a little bit of everything, generalist of different things. There's hyper-focus, but most of us are just like really great generalists. And for us as generalists is we have to go touch a lot of fires to go learn what's going on or like we have to go observe and learn from other people. And whatever you learn from others doesn't always translate to your business ultimately. And God, how many times I've learned something, but I put it in my business and made it even worse, right? So <laughs> it definitely is a learning experience based around your style, based around who you are, based around your own way of operating at the end of the day, because that's why we do this. We don't do this because we want to conform to the rules that other people have set. We want to do this because we want to create our own rules ultimately at some level or another. But there are still rules we got to follow because they're the rules of the world, right? So I think that you're right. Like, age and wisdom come together. And I'm not surprised by that stat. The older I get, the more I understand why that stat is so important. It's super duper duper important. I want to go back to something that we touched on earlier, maybe a complete hard left turn because it's been sticking in the back of my brain. So you decided after you kept seeing in these meetings that you were getting stuck with the same type of clients, you said, we're only going to, or customers, right? You said, we're only going to stick to this particular type of customer. How did your marketing mix or your attribution for those customers change, if at all? Like, did you have to shift your marketing dollars and say, okay, the majority of the customers that are target fit are coming from Facebook ads or coming from word of mouth or coming from affiliates? Like, where was it before? How much did you have to change it? And then if you were to look at a pie now of your attribution, you know, what is mainly doing to drive most of your, your customers? Yeah. So in 2021, I met this sales leader and he gave me some very simple glaring words. And I was like, okay. He's like, Jimmy, he's like, you have to go to the customers that you want and reach out to them and sell them your product. And I was like, that actually makes a lot of sense. If I'm building for a certain person, I should be able to reach out to that person and it should make sense. So that's what we started with. We started with what they called a cold outbound motion. We dialed people, we emailed them, we linked in them, we bothered them. I'm sure anyone listening to this has been <laughs> bothered before by a, an outbound business development representative. That was us, one of our, our initial plays. And we kind of used that as our metric, right? We learned all the identifications that had to come into our ICP and we focused on those people and we reached out to them and started bringing business in. So that's how we started. And we grew this team. We started to you know, have more and more people that came into it and started to break into the market and start to learn. And you know, inherently, the biggest thing that I take back over the last, like, you know, when we went through this process over the last, I don't know, let's see, 15, 18 months since we started that process was that initially it was great because A, we're getting to the customers we never thought we'd get. B, it was giving us validation. But three, the feedback that we started to get, the learnings we started to get, what was winning, what wasn't working, you know, getting the understanding of the market is, you know, you can't have that unless you have a lot of customers and you talk to them. And so that was where we started, right? So I would say the majority of our initial money and revenue was completely outbound. I'm talking 90% of it was outbound at that point, 10% through probably networks and events, but really it was all outbound. And uh, that's what we're spending our time on. But 
to me, it didn't make sense in a market where selling the marketers at the end of the day. And <laughs> to me, I was like, marketers like to be marketed to, they yeah. like to be sold to through marketing. And I started to really take back and I'll tell you just kind of the high level, like what we did and the mindset that we took really, we started off with understanding our marketing position, right? And what I mean by that is I look at the incumbent, right? We've got this company called Clavio that's raised 700, $800 million. They're worth $9 billion. And here's little old me. And I knew that I had to break something. I looked up at him. I really dissected who they are. And it really came out to two very simple things that I learned out of it. One, I learned that A, the whole David versus Goliath playbook, I sat there and dissected the living crap out of it from T-Mobile to ClickFunnels to all these different companies that I've seen do it. And I just looked at what they were doing to try to understand it. And that brought my second principle out. My second principle was, I had to understand what the weakness mm. was, what the weakness of my competitor was. And I looked at him and I said, great, they got a great product, they have a great feature set, but they missed something. The missing something was they're brandless, they were faceless. They had nobody who's representing the market. Their customers are out there representing the market, but because they're no longer like the new hot startup and they were just kind of chugging along as a dominant leader, it was more of a passive agreement. And quickly I recognized that I had a weird, unique opportunity as an email marketer with a background in uh, being a retailer that if I could tell my story and I could connect to the audience, I could start becoming involved in what I would look as the community. And when I look at this world of D2C, I look at it very much, I call it the middle of the funnel opportunity because Everybody's in the middle of the funnel in that market. There's still a small top of the funnel and bottom, but really a lot of them are very much a social play. They play, work together, they drive together, they go do things together. Their friends are other marketers and different things. And I realized that if I can't break into that market, that's the market that's going to allow and accept me to get into this market and allow me to break and find places. So I spent time really figuring out how to break into that market. And I spent time I spent a lot of time in this. Uh, I, uh, there was first thing I, we had talked about earlier. I, I said yes to every podcast. I was number one. Number two, I went to as many events as I physically, humanly could go to. And I spent a lot of time on the road. So I'm talking nine, 10 weeks out of 12 weeks out of the quarter, wow. traveling, speaking on stages, being able to go dinners, wow. go shake hands. Go, the most unscalable <laughs> of things. Everyone would hate this, but it was all about non-scalable opportunities at this time because you had to, right? And I would take every call that I could. I would talk to every merchant I could. Anyone who would take a call, I would talk to because I needed to understand what I needed to do. And so that's what I did. And then, of course, I used social media as my third uh, arm as something that I wanted to go out and talk to and continue to say the things that I say. I know that people listen to me now, but I was tweeting a year ago and no one listened to me. I used to get three people to look at my stuff and I might get a like, but I didn't quit because for me, I knew that it takes time and persistence in order to do it. And my goal is to be at the place when the event happens. So we combined all that with all around positioning, right? Really understanding our product and our power. And really, I'll tell you the simple secret that no one can really argue, right? In a good marriage, what's the good marriage of foundation? I'm sure you've heard this before, but in a marriage, they always say one thing. They say a good marriage is when two people hate the same things. They don't have to love the same things, but they got to hate the same things. They got to dislike the same things. So what did I do? I looked at my platform. I looked at my competitor and I said, what do we hate together? And I picked on those a lot. And I just continue to pick on those a lot. And I pick on the deficiencies a lot and I expose the things that they weren't even noticing that they didn't like. Well, they don't like now, right? And that created a new bubble for us. And then I combined that with all the cool things we can do that they can't do, right? Differentiation starts to matter even more. So it was like a combination of all those things that I just told you without yeah, going into every yeah. minor part, but like bringing it all together, it's Max, I'd love to tell you the magic bullet, <laughs> but the magic bullet is called sweat equity. You just work your ass off and you're everywhere and it works. 
And it may not work for two years, three years, but it will work eventually if you keep pounding on the door. And that's basically what I did for the last two years is pound on the door until someone let me in. And finally, when someone let me in, I made sure that I was goddamn ready to be in there so I can make sure that I didn't fail or drop the ball. And that was the most important thing of it all, right? So that's the way I look at it. That's the kind of way that I kind of drove the go-to-market. And we continue to drive that. We continue to evolve that. As you said, I brought in some advisors now to help me understand the market. It wasn't just purely a marketing position with influencer. It was really someone I can talk to about my issues, talk to about what they're doing and give me the feedback. When I want to make something or say something, I might ask him and they'll be like, Jimmy, that's a terrible idea. All right, let's move on. That was a terrible idea, right? You've got to believe in them. So finding those people, aligning with them and having good support is really important, especially as me. uh, I consider myself now a solo founder because really the company, when it took off, I was a solo founder at that point because everyone was gone. So I always say like, you don't have that third party to lean on. So I can't talk to my board about it because I report to my board. I can't talk to my employees about it because my employer, my team is who trusts me to know the decision. So I've got to find peers and different people, which is why you got to have masterminds and groups or advisors. So that's kind of where that came into play. And it's, it's all been this big circle of things that I've been working on for years, like the chase story. I know you just made chase earlier, but my chase story was a four-year running story. It wasn't a story of like, oh, I just went to him. Four years ago, I reached out to him because I wanted to be friends with him because he was doing the same things that I loved doing, which was email marketing. We weren't talking about him being a part of Sendly. That only happened because the years and years <laughs> of him watching us just push and push and break through just got him excited over time. And he wanted to join the team. So, you know, these are things that you got to think about. And as you said, man, uh, my team always says that this about me. I think very long term about it because, you know, my job or every CEO's job is two things. You got to be able to present right now on the ground floor and you got to be two years into the future at all times. And you've got to be able to snap your mind in and out of that at all times in order to be a good CEO. And so for me, that's what I've been doing to try to be that. I'll say that I live more in the present today than the future I'd like to, but it's all part of evolution as a business. So that was my long-winded answer to that. If you like what you're hearing, please take a quick second to hit that share button and text it to a friend, post it in a Slack channel, or share it on any of your favorite social platforms. It takes us hours to make this show, but only a few seconds for you to share it with your community. Thanks. Let's get back to the show. So many nuggets, so many interesting things in there. One thing that really stuck with me that I resonate with and often preach in the content that I create is this concept that I first discovered from Dale Carnegie, right? This amazing, famous sales leader. And I don't know what you'd call him. Like the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People is just one of the greatest books of all time. And he talks a lot about, especially in his speeches, how when you're trying to make a friend, or even if you're trying to pick up on a date on a significant other, random person at the bar, most people's initial instinct is to find something that you have in common. But in reality, the stronger bond that you can create way faster is if you find something you both dislike. So finding something, okay, we both like the Lakers, great. We both really hate LeBron and think he shouldn't be a Laker. Okay, like we're really going to be bonding way faster than, oh, we're both Lakers fans. Okay, yeah, there's millions of us Lakers fans. But like when you find something that you dislike, it just becomes so much more passionate. And translating that into your marketing, yeah, we both hate the fact that Clavio is so expensive. We both hate the fact that they don't have great customer service. We like it helps you resonate with your target audience so much quicker. Was there one message in that list of things that you and your target customers disliked that really resonated most that that you really try to pick on Clavio for? Or 
or is it just kind of a melting pot of things? Yeah, it's a melting pot. I guess like, you know, there's things that I do, weird, funny things that I do, like my weird, I mean, there's no secret to them. You can see them in public that I do them, but like customer support, for example, right? I do this funny thing that people started to catch on to me, but I, I've been doing it for, God, all year, basically since the beginning. I do this like happy Sunday post. I'm like, happy Sunday to everyone with my competitors. I use the same image. I break down some of the things, but I change the middle snippet because I want to keep them entertained and keep them interested in top of the mind, right? So there was that that I did. The other thing that I did was really fun was, and this is all about a testament about being in the right place at the right time often and you know, creating your own luck. That's what I always call this. But you know, something that we've been working magically behind the scene for the last six months is this new pricing idea. I hated the fact that you had to pay for contacts. Didn't make sense to me. Realized that they took an old adage playbook and they evolved it into theirs, but they didn't evolve it out. And so I've been getting this ready. In fact, I was laughing. I, I look at this as a big pivotal moment for us, but you know, this wasn't that long ago as we're talking about a month ago, but I had been creating this. I created this entire story guide. I had this whole idea. How I'm going to go to market and release this noise. And then Clavio, the guys, they released this great memo into the world that hits everybody's inbox that says, we're raising prices essentially on everybody. And I was like, that's it. I'm just going to layer on top of it and just jump on top of it. We're going to peg on top of it. And we're going to ride that noise with them because again, <laughs> who wants to hate what? We need to hate the fact that they're raising prices. So we're going to go hate on it together. And that's what I put out into the market. And that created more viralness. So like all these little things that I do, you know, I would say that I prepare, I get ready and do the best, but it's about having that real-time action and being aware right now, right? I couldn't have done this if I was a social media guy posting for on behalf of someone. I couldn't have done this if I scheduled out all my stuff all the year. I couldn't have done this if I wasn't connected to the community, right? I was connected to community. I had a large enough voice. People were listening to me and then it all hit at the right time. So, you know, that's why we say like you make your own luck as an entrepreneur. You do all the things you work so hard for it, and it's really just finding that right opportunity. And that opportunity will come to us, all of us, at least once in our life. We just don't know when it is. And <laughs> if you're ready for it, man, It'll take off. But if you're not, it's going to beat you up and spit you out and you'll move on forward and you'll have to wait for the next one. So that's basically the best way I explain what I did. Like it was all about like finding those commonalities. And those are just the two. There's a million other ones that I find commonalities around. But like those are the ones that really hit hard as a recent. Yeah, it makes total sense. One of my favorite lines ever is luck is where hard work meets opportunity, which essentially just means if you keep working hard, the timing will eventually hit, right? The goalie will be away from the goal and you'll be in the right place at the right time to yep. score. Clavio says we're raising prices and you've been working on this new pricing plan for weeks or months, if not years. Boom, let's jump on it. Timing's right. You know, it's not just luck. It's not just timing. It's the hard work that you put in. You happen to be thinking about it at the right time. Out of curiosity, what is the pricing that's so different that's not archaic? Well, like, how do you guys price? Yeah. So we spent time over the last six months testing this, but the number one thing we learned with these businesses were very simple. They're three, four, five, 10 year old businesses. They have a lot of contacts and they want to keep that historical data. But in order to keep those people on your list, you'd have to pay for the contacts that were on your list, right? Mm. Pretty old adage ESP pricing. I looked at it and said, well, it doesn't really cost me much difference in money if you keep 100,000 contacts or 1,000 contacts in here. What costs me money ultimately is your mailing and your movement of data. And so I said, well, why don't they just pay on that? And no one will complain because you're not paying for contacts. If everyone's complaining all the time that contacts are expensive, Clavio's expensive because they charge me for these contacts that I don't use. Well, let's get rid of that talking track. So that's what we did. So we remodeled it all. It's completely different. It's unique, but it works. Wow. And it saves people money too, ultimately at the end of the day. So it was like a magical multi-factor, like A, saving money, B, pay the way they want to, and three, 
it's undisplaceable because what we've created was a change in a business model. And knowing that Clavio is about to <laughs> IPO, they're not changing any pricing model. So I knew that I had opportunity to kick him when they're down and when they have no opportunity to defend themselves. Because if they're an IPO process, which you know that's the rumor right now, if they are an IPO process like everyone's saying they are, well, then they really can't change anything because their playbook has to stay exactly alike. So that just allows me to keep hammering and pushing on them while they're going to the IPO process. Plus, I think they're in a quiet zone too, so they can't even talk about it. So that's even better for me <laughs> and uh, allows me to continue kicking them. So I'm kicking their shin. That's what I like to say. I'm kicking their shin like a little kid and causing enough problems for them. And I know I know internally from just hearing from outsiders that we are in their ether. They know about us, but they know they can't do anything about us right now because they're in an interesting position. And I use that strategical timing to continue to push on it and make sure that I use this. This is my going to be my loudest stage that I'm allowed to be on because they can't even talk about me right now. So they have to just take my abuse right now. And that's the best part about it. And I'm going to continue to average, which is why I'm doing it through a summer, which generally isn't as big of a time, but our summers have been fantastic because we've been able to push on it. I absolutely love that. So if I could be selfish for a minute, yeah, you have been all over, Send Lane has been all over Twitter. I've said it multiple times in the last 53 minutes. You guys have been all over Twitter, you're kicking them in the shins. You're trying to be loud. You're trying to be vocal. You clearly have momentum, right? I I love the West Wing, one of my favorite shows ever, probably my first or second favorite show ever, when one of their presidential candidates made a big push in the polls. He took the phone line and he was swinging around. We got the big Mo. We got the big Mo. I'd say, you guys got the big Mo. Who's ever editing this? I don't know who's editing it yet, but find that clip from the West Wing. We got the Mo, baby. Josh Lyman. Okay. Anyways, no more West Wing rants. You have the big Mo. You're clearly doing something right. It seems like it's kind of fly by night, off the cuff, random, but I feel like it's a little bit more orchestrated than it seems. And I'm launching a really big SaaS tool, company, project, whatever, in the next few weeks. This podcast might be live by the time I make it live. But what's your advice to me? I don't know what your average like ARR is per customer. Mine's going to be about 5K per year per customer. So I don't know how similar it is. but What's your advice to me, who's just about to launch a SaaS, targeting agency owners specifically, 5K annual revenue per client or per customer, how do I get the big mo? How do I take some of this magic juju that you have, that you've created in the last few months, kicking and screaming at the shins of your biggest competitor? (laughs) What's your advice to me, if I could be selfish? Yeah. Just so you have comparison, I guess what's interesting is my ACVs, your question there, what was my ACVs 16 months ago? They're about five, six K today. We're about 60 K is our ACV now. So uh, we've tremendously moved on market. I would tell you very simply right now is that the biggest thing that comes into just like agency, just like e-commerce is you got to connect to the market. It's not about traditional advertising and you've got to spend, and as I go back to it, it's the unscalable things that you're going to have to do today till you get to a certain traction point. And to you, you're well connected in the market. You've got a community. You've got people who talk to you. It's just really engulfing around the people who you mm. want to sell to and learning from them as much as you can so you can learn how to sell to them and be a part of them. So me, it goes still back to that day of cold outbound. I know every SaaS owner hates to hear that, but you got to go put, and that guy that told me, his name was Chris and shout out to him for telling me this one line. Like, <laughs> I don't know anything else, remember anything else really about him, but this is the one thing I remember. It's be where your customers are and stand in front and get the customer that you want for your product. 
And that's the most important things in the early days. So I would say you got to go figure out whatever it is, however you have to do it to get in front of those customers and show them the value, be able to pitch in, position it. And if you can't sell to them, you're not going to sell to anybody because that's who you've identified your building for. So ultimately, that's what I'd be spending my time on. Yeah, it's going to be slow and treacherous and doesn't feel great. And you're going to waste way too much time and way too much money on a lot of things. But those early days, if you can understand who your customer is and you can speak to them, it will snowball over time because they have friends that are just like them. That's ultimately what it comes down to. The sweat equity, like you were saying before, traveling nine out of 12 weeks a quarter. It's all sweat equity, man. I wish I could tell somebody like, it's easier than sweat equity. There's a magic bullet. There's a Facebook ad. There's a community to sponsor. There's a, you know, there's a podcast, whatever it might be. It's not, it's a little bit of everything and being everywhere. And as you said, Max, like figuring out how to be everywhere ultimately. And that is being in person. That is being on voice. That is being on everything else. And that's all going to translate to that exit of people creating curiosity, interest. And look, only at any given market, 10 to 20% of the market's actually interested in what you're selling. So you just have to be there when that 20 to 20% is ready. So it comes back again, being to the right place at the right time. And the only way you do that is to create a great group of community and people who talk about you word of mouth. And then of course, selling to the people that you want you want so that they're out there talking about the product and saying, hey, this product is really great for my <laughs> business. And all their friends are going to say, your business is like my business. I better go check out that product. And that's really the early days of it. If I could go back, that's what I would have spent my time doing more and more of, especially in this ecosystem and this world that's evolved as well. And, and that's the, the only other caveat is five years ago, you could argue that the world could be different. And it really was different five years ago. However, it doesn't matter. You've got to adapt to it today. So, and to your other point about like, how are we doing it? Oh man, there's an entire strategy of things that we have scheduling and timing and what topics. But the one thing that's always a little bit fly is the content part. I know the topic I'm going to talk about. I know what I want to, but a lot of my content is not pre-curated. It's very much on the fly because I find that that creates the most authentic content and real life experience that people can relate to. Not only is it relevant to today, but it's also you know, having a little grammarary spelling errors and little things like people realize that's real and people are talking <laughs> about, especially on a channel like, well, X, I guess now, like a channel like X, you've got to be in that authentic self. Like Elon does the same thing, right? And it's really what works and resonates because it wasn't a marketing material. It is part of a marketing plan, but the marketing that's happening is really out there in an authentic way. So there's a balance of that for sure. Yeah. One of the things I used to tell clients at my ad agency was there's a study that Harvard conducted, they called it the rule of fifths for somebody to see or hear your product or service five times before they even decided yes or no, if they're going to purchase your product. And I've had so many new brands that started with my ad agency. We were the first agency of record. We got them started with Facebook ads and they would say, you know, why isn't this working in month one? Why aren't we at a four X, five X ROI, like all your other clients in month one? I said, look, it's going to take us months to retarget all of the people that have first heard us. And we need to target them with testimonials. And then we need to target them with influencers. And then we need to target them with discounts. Then we need to target, retarget them with all these things because people need to see that you are everywhere. So I, I totally subscribe to that notion that you just got to be everywhere. You got to show up at the conferences. You got to show up on the platforms. If your target audience is on LinkedIn, you got to be there. If you're selling food product and everyone that who is your target customer follows food influencers, that's where not only your budget needs to go, but your time. It needs to be commenting on every single one of their posts. And it needs to be resharing all of their posts. And, and just getting into the community, getting ingrained in the community. Jimmy, you and I could talk forever. I feel like we could pick your brain on all these amazing topics forever. We typically wrap with 
these five questions that are a little generic, but I think they make for great clips on Instagram and TikTok and also just good to know from really interesting people such as yourself. So I'll rattle off these five, what I call rapid fire, quick hit questions, and I'll let you get back to building your empire if that works for you. Sure. Let's do it. Awesome. Awesome. Outside of that sales piece of advice that you got that clearly made a huge impact on you and your business, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Have customer service and really give a shit about it. Very simply, mm. like put the money and energy in it, even on the early days. I know that it's expensive and it's operating costs, but it is a differentiator, one that people cannot challenge very easily if you build it right from the early days. And it doesn't have to be some crazy structure. Just remember that it can be done in a very lean yet very successful way. And that's something that we do here at Sendly. I love that. I mean, Jeff Bezos talks about that all the time. Uh, Zappos founder. RIP, he talks oh, yeah. about that all the time. One of my like, favorite books, man. Business. Yeah, that's how I built One of my favorite business. books is Tony Shea's Delivering Happiness. That was one of my favorite books, one that I continue to read. It was the one that I built my foundation of my first business on, the second business, and this third one. Dude, it's true. It's really hard to give up great customer service. And the first thing a person does if they ever leave your service is they compare you to that customer service. And if you can leave an impact and mark, it just makes them angrier. And again, gets them back to the anger points that you need to get them to, to come on back. So <laughs> that is always important, man. 100%. What was your favorite class that you took in college? God, what did I love? <laughs> <laughs> I would say political science was one of my favorite class. I know it's kind of a BS class in its own unique way, but I liked it because it was okay. opinionated. And it was kind of like your early drivers of finding, what's the best word? I, I know a lot of lawyers go in there. It's like finding ways to defend a position that, really doesn't need to be defended or whatnot. I always agreed like that. I didn't do enough school to tell you anything else. I never really got into anything super exciting outside of the basics. So that's probably the most exciting because as far as I'm concerned, my English teacher told me I'd fail in life with English. So uh, <laughs> that wasn't, you know what I mean? Like, Damn. you know, he's just my grammar was bad, right? Like, and I still take my grammar and spelling is bad, <laughs> but I always laugh at like, if I look at my worst, it's my English teacher, but I'd like to show her that these word things are working for me. So, you know, <laughs> Man, you and I have a lot of similarities. My grammar and everything is so awful. It's so bad. And they used you to write like, hound my parents. They used to <laughs> hound my parents on it. And even to this day, I get people who respond to my email like, dude, you have like five typos in this in this like five paragraph email newsletter. I'll do it for free. Can I just like edit your newsletter every week? And I'm like, nope, this is who I am. Like you either love me or you hate me. It's real. It's authentic. Like it's a reminder that you know this is who I am. If you like the content, that's all that matters. Yeah. So you and I have a lot in common there. What would you say is your biggest career failure? God, my biggest career failure, I would say, is this is for the founders out there. I think this is important. Make sure when you start your business that you do a great job understanding how important a cap table and titles are. And I say this so importantly because A, yeah. don't give away your business just because you need someone to help you out. Don't give away equity very easily because it's really important later on in life if it becomes successful. And the same thing with titles. I see overinflated titles. Like, my buddy's the CMO. Well, you just screwed your buddy from a 12, 18 month ramp. When you guys take off, you're going to have to fire him. You know what I mean? Like understanding mm. how important that stuff is. So I would say some of the career fails are there. I mean, there's a lot of things. God, I failed at a lot of things, but those <laughs> are probably the biggest failure, like the biggest points that I look back and say, man, this is the thing that I'm not going to screw up the next time I started another business is like, 
I'm going to understand what it means to own. Even this business, suddenly, and I was like, as much as I love it, I build everything into my heart and I don't care what I own on it because it's not about the money. I will say yeah. at the early days, I gave away way too much with my co-founders, even though they weren't even involved. And I gave them way too much equity and stake. They all got paid out the way they need to get paid out over the time. I didn't, of course, because I'm still in it. But like, I look back and I'm like, God, I screwed up. And uh, mm-hmm. you know what? It's part of the story, man. It's how I learned. I won't do it again. Wow. Great, great, great lesson. I hear that a lot from a lot of founders. They just gave away too much of their cap table too soon. Yep. And they didn't need that extra capital or they just took it from the wrong person. And now that they are in bed with the wrong person, they didn't do their proper DD. And now they have to find someone good to come in to buy that other person out. And it's just costly. And it's like one of those things that you just can't take back in business. It's just a marriage, man. It's, like, it's a marriage. Yeah, it's a marriage. It's a tattoo. Although you can. God forbid, remove both those things. They're both extremely challenging, not speaking from experience. Two more. You mentioned that Delivering Happiness was a super impactful book. What would you say is the most impactful book on your life or on your career? God, such a great question. What do I love? I'm looking at my book stack here. (laughs) You're not the first person to look at their book stack. (laughs) Take your time. You know, one of the books that I read early on that continues to always stay with me and I always go back to the principles is it's a book called Scaling Up by Vernon Davis. I'm sure mm-hmm. you've heard of that book before. It's about the Rockefeller yep. principles. I think that helped me become a better business person. I think it helped me understand mm-hmm. it. But hold on, hold on. Wait, no, I just had an idea. The <laughs> book that really helped me the most as a startup founder, okay. I'm going to get real specific, is Crossing the Chasm. Yeah. Crossing the Chasm. That is the book that really... It helps you understand why the hell it's so hard. And it helps you understand like you're not on the wrong track. It's just part of the journey and understanding that journey is really long and really shitty at a lot of times, but you just have to go through it because you're always going to do it. No no matter how great things are, you're still going to have crappy days. You're still going to have challenges. You're still going to have things to work out. So yeah, man, I would say scaling up for business principle. I would say uh, crossing the chasm for the startup world and then yeah, delivering happiness for customer service. So those are three books that I do enjoy. Amazing. I frankly can tell you that I'm not that great of a book person. Remember, I didn't finish school. Like <laughs> books, not the thing. I like reading blogs. I like listening to podcasts a lot and I like uh, watching videos, of course. So <laughs> big shout out to uh, Jason at Saster was one of my favorite places that I spent a lot of time learning about how to operate SaaS. If you've ever wanted for those that are listening. His YouTube or where do you find his content? Everywhere. I mean, on saster.com, you can find things. His social is incredible if you follow Jason Lemkin or, of course, his YouTube stuff too as well. So he's like my early signal. I mean, he, him and I, we conversed and talked before, but he, you know, he turned out my investment <laughs> in the send lane, but he's always kept in touch and stayed close. And he's just, he just spits out the truth, man. If you listen and watch the things he says, he's not wrong. He's never wrong. That's the thing, you know, and they're probably generalized <laughs> enough that it can never be wrong, but it's a good guiding principle. Put it that way. Yeah, I've followed Jason Lumpkin on Twitter for years, well before I even changed my handle to Marketing Max. And I love the guy. And so when you said you watch his video content, that's why I asked YouTube three times, like, where can I get more of his content? It's so good. Yeah, Saster.com. They've got an entire course and videos everywhere. They got so much good content. Amazing. Wow. I also find that a lot of the guests that come on are like me and like you and that we don't like to read. I really hate reading. It, It just drains my energy like crazy. I've recently become obsessed with listening to audiobooks because similarly, I like podcasts, but yep. you know, if it's a good book, you can just listen to it. You don't have to read it. You could be sitting outside. You could be even flipping through Twitter, listening to it. And you'll still pick up like 80, 90% of it, which is amazing I, how the brain works, but it's my new hack. <laughs> that's what I always say. It's some level of ADHD of some sort that we have that 
I just need to walk, do something. Like I need to be doing other things. Like I need to be working on my car while I'm listening to a podcast. I'll digest it better <laughs> that way than if you tell me to read this book. I'm actually a speed reader and, and it's really funny. I can read really fast, but I don't like it. It's not enjoyable. Like I don't get sitting by the beach and reading a book. Like that's not me, but I will sit by the beach and watch a video on business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. I yesterday sat on the, yesterday, Sunday, I sat on the beach and listened to a, an audio book about Warren Buffett. I'm obsessed with this book. I keep talking about it to everyone. But yeah, literally sitting on the beach, just listening to an audio book of Warren Buffett. It's 17 hours long. Final question of rapid fire outside of work and even a little bit outside of family, but obviously family comes into this. What do you like to do for fun? Obviously we're, we're entrepreneurs. We're obsessed with work 24 seven, but what do you like to do for fun outside of this crazy thing we call business? I'm pretty sure I'm having a midlife crisis, but the three things that I do right now are I like to work on cars or build cars. So I'm a big car guy. I've been building cars for years, 20 plus years. As ever since I was 16, I was always building like fun little things. I'm building currently today is a 1995 Nissan Skyline GTR. That's what I build today. I brought it from Japan and, wow. I, and, I, and I build its right-hand drive. That's fun. I play poker. The story is that if I ever was not an entrepreneur. I would have been a professional poker player, a high stakes cash poker player. I still do that wow. today, not as much as I like to. And then the third thing, uh, I like video games, man. I'm just just like everyone else. I like to play Call of Duty and talk crap to little kids and get my ass beat on, on weekends, you know? So I'm okay with it. You know what I mean? I still play. My fingers aren't as quick, but I still play. So yeah, man, 60 year old boy. I always say I'm having my midlife. Well, my wife always says you're in your constant midlife. But I was like, that's what I've been doing for 25 years. I was at a midlife crisis. It's just I've never grew up out of having fun. So <laughs> that's really the three things that I would sp say I spend time on mostly these days. Amazing. Dude, thank you so much for coming on the Marketing Max show. It's been great getting to know you. It's been great kind of pulling the curtain back behind Sunlight. I see you guys everywhere. You absolutely are, to use your own words, kicking at the shins of Clavio, to use my term knocking on their door and i think it's just getting louder and louder and louder where do you see this going i mean where do you see of course you want to take them over or maybe get acquired by them one day but like in your own mind yeah i always say this when i see this market and i have a very different view of this market i think there's enough space in this market to have multiple winners i don't think i'm ever going to knock down clavio i think i can sit right next to them and be a, a true competitor in the market and because of how big the market is it doesn't require me to win the entire market to win this amount of money and value with it i think that we provide and solve for a different thing that they are solving for and ultimately, it's going to be a question of what do you want to do and what are you looking for? If you're looking for what they're trying to build towards, then great. If you're looking more at me, I'm going to create and solve a different problem for you. So that's the way I look at it over the next couple of years. Who knows what's going to happen? You know, we could go public. We could go get sold. We could get acquired. Hey, Clavio could knock on my door and offer me a gross sum of money that I can't say no to because I need to do that for my team, right? Like there's a number. All yeah. of us have a number. And so for me, it's, I want to do what's best for everyone. And look, this isn't my last startup, man. This is just my next one, right? The next one will be better and bigger. I have no idea what I'm going to build, but I know myself. I won't not build. So I will move on one day from this company. And when that happens, I'll go build something and hopefully I'll do it faster than before because I know what to do this time even better. And that's really the goal I have, right? That's why second, third, fourth time entrepreneurs are better. And I see why. This has been the greatest <laughs> learning experience in my life. And it doesn't matter right now, as I told you, like, it's not about the money. It's about the big picture. And I want to win and I want to leave a landmark on the world, I guess, that Send Lane is there for years and years, even after I leave. Right. So that's the big thing. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, you've definitely earned a major fan in me. I'm a huge fan of what you're doing. 
the way you're doing it, the contrarian approach, taking the long view and playing the long game. It's absolutely amazing what you guys are doing. Where can people find you? Where can people get in touch? Obviously, sendlane.com, or I don't know if it's a different domain, but sendlane.com. No, it's sendlane.com. You can find us there. We have tons of content there. Obviously, you mentioned I'm on Twitter. Twitter is my main channel. I do LinkedIn as well, too, but LinkedIn's a little bit harder because you got to connect and do all this stuff. But on Twitter is where <laughs> I spend most of my time. I drop lots of crazy knowledge on Twitter, and my goal there is just to educate. I have no objective but to educate. And when and if you're ready for Sunlane ever, hit me up and I'm happy to chat about it. But otherwise, those are the two places. Outside of that, you'll probably find me at your favorite local direct-to-consumer event or dinner. Don't be surprised if you see me there because I travel a lot. I'm already looking at my September and I'm literally on the road every week in September at like three dinners a week, a boat, uh, this ride, this event, that event, speaking here, speaking there. I'll be there. And that's my goal. That's amazing. Jimmy, you're doing it the old-fashioned way, which will never go out of style. I commend you for it. Major applause from me and my community. Hopefully, we'll have you back on the pod when you've gotten that gross sum of money from either an IPO or Clavio, and we can talk all about the details of negotiating that. Have a good rest (laughs) of your day. Thanks so much for taking your time. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Max. You got it. Thanks for listening to The Marketing Max Show. It takes me and my team hours to produce it every single week, but it only takes you 15 seconds to hit that share button and text it to a friend, drop it in a Slack group, or share it on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or any of your favorite social platforms. I appreciate you taking the time to check out my content. Have an awesome day.